Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay, and we're continuing our discussions with Stephen Cohen about Russia, the United States, and Trump, and Putin. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you. For Stephen's bio, just look under the video player, but watch the earlier segments. Uh, but I'll plug your book. People should read this book. It's important. Uh, it's called War with Russia, question mark, from Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. And let me say, well, in the last segment, I'm arguing with you about the, how to characterize Trump. And I don't know, maybe we'll argue again. Um, I think your contribution on this issue is extremely important. I know you've been in, under incredible pressure and ice, getting isolated on this uh, point. And uh, I think it's brave of you to take the stance you do. Okay, let's just move on. In the early years of Putin's presidency, uh, the West quite liked him. They, I guess they thought he would be a continuation of Yeltsin. I think they had expectations that he would help facilitate an American, uh, I don't know if the, the world takeover is too strong, but allowing American mining companies and energy companies and finance to come in. And instead, what emerged with a state with real laws and an oligarchy emerged, which I think at some point the Russian people will have to deal with because I don't think it's good for them, but it's up to them. Uh, that being said, America didn't get a free-for-all. Um, but as, as this relationship with the West became uh, more and more tense, and I think to a large extent for these reasons, the Americans didn't get everything they wanted out of Russia, uh, the, uh, I don't understand why Putin didn't uh, take more of the Chinese stance, which is avoid direct confrontation as much as you can and build up your strength. And I don't get Crimea. Um, Crimea was, it, it's, and you suggest in your book, wasn't there an alternative to the annexation? Uh, it, it, there wasn't like an immediate threat. I know there was a right-wing takeover, a far-right takeover of Ukraine. The Americans certainly uh, facilitated and helped engineer it. It is a kind of strategic threat. I mean, all I think that's clear, and you've made the case very eloquently. But still, why poke uh, Europe and the United States in the eye and kind of make the case of the anti-detente forces? Oh, look, you know, Russia's on the move. It starts with Crimea and Georgia will be next, and then it will be the whole of Ukraine. Of course, it didn't start with Crimea, and that's just the argument that people who don't wish to understand the Russian point of view make. It didn't start with Crimea. It began with the expansion of NATO to Russia's borders. No doubt. Well, not only no doubt, but for Putin and for the Russian political class, that was the context in the prism through which they viewed Western and particularly American policy toward Russia. So when the Ukrainian crisis began in 2013, let's remember what happened because it does lead to the annexation of Crimea. In 2013, the European Union told the then president of uh, Ukraine, uh, Yanukovych, and he may have been a rotter, but he was constitutionally and legally elected. It would have been a clean election. He was the president. That um, he needed to sign an economic partnership with the European Union. Uh, it meant, in effect, losing his preferred trade status with Russia, which constituted about 40% of 
Ukrainian trade, not to mention about three to four million Ukrainians who worked in Russia to support their families, were allowed to do so and allowed to send their salaries back to Ukraine to support their families. So Ukraine was heavily dependent on Russia economically, and along comes the European Union that wants to exclude Russia from this new arrangement. So Putin says, Putin and his foreign minister Lavrov say, look guys, uh, why not a tripartite arrangement? It'd be good for everybody. We'll have an economic preferred agreement with Russia, Ukraine, and the European Union. And Washington and Brussels said no. Russia can't participate. Yanukovych, for that reason, declined to sign the agreement, and that led to the Maidan uprising. And Yanukovych flees from office to Russia. So Putin now is sitting in Moscow, and Crimea comes to the fore because you've got a very right-wing, and I would say crazy government in power, saying outlandish things, including you know, Crimea is ours and we're going to expel the Russian naval base there, which was there by treaty. They had at least, I think, 25 years on the base. There were 22,000, by law, Russian soldiers on the Crimean base. They were already there. All right. So Putin's sitting here. He sees some kind of threat. Maybe it's rhetorical. But bad things are ha happening. This was a very violent uprising. You remember the burning buildings in in, in Kiev and Maidan. If you watch this on TV, this was violence. It was very serious. Snipers killed, I think, 85 to 100 people on Maidan just before Yanukovych fled. They said that the snipers were sent by Yanukovych, but we now know they weren't. They were sent by neo-fascists, Ukrainian neo-fascists on Maidan. But remember, Putin's operating in a context that's moving very fast very dangerous. Intelligence is sparse, not clear. But there's clearly a new government in Kiev that's laying claim not only to uh, Crimea forever, but to expelling the Russian naval base there. So Putin has to decide. The back history is Putin never showed any interest in Crimea until that moment. However, it had been an issue in Russian politics when Putin ran for president in 2000. There was a party headed by two very influential men, the, very, the former mayor of Moscow, Lushkov, and the former foreign minister, Primakov, who had advocated uh, uh, reuniting Crimea with Russia because Crimea had traditionally been a Russian province. I think somewhere like, don't speak of ethnicity, speak of language, Something like 85% of the population speaks Russian as a native language. I mean, enormous number. It's, it's, it's a Russian province. And it was only an act of accident under Khrushchev that it had been assigned administratively when the Soviet Union existed to Ukraine because Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. So what was Putin supposed to do? So to the extent that we know how he made the decision, he was told by his intelligence people, all leaders in crisis depend on intelligence take Crimea today through a referendum and peacefully. And by the way, they were polling like crazy. They knew they'd get 85 plus. They knew this. If they had, and the referendum was completely open. All this crap about at gunpoint is nonsense. I mean, it was a fair referendum. And Gallup has been going back to Crimea and polling. They get the same number. 85% want to be with Russia. 
Putin is told, do it by the ballot the box today or fight a war there tomorrow. That's what he was told. What would you have done in his place? See, it's easy for you, Paul, and me, Steve, to sit here and debate what leaders, Trump, any leader, Kennedy, Putin, should do in a crisis situation without knowing the circumstances or what we would do in that situation. I mean, but they have to act and they have to act fast. Okay, but in your book you suggest there might have been an alternative. Well, I, I can just simply tell you what Putin was told as the alternative. Uh, one group said you have to take Crimea now. The polls show Crimeans will vote to join Russia. There is an international law that rever referendums are binding and legal. We'll have a referendum, we'll get the result, and they'll vote to join Russia and we'll take them in. Do that. The other view was hold the referendum, but don't welcome them into, into Russia. Use it as a bargaining card with the West and Kiev when we see how the Maidan so-called revolution, it wasn't a revolution, but the Maidan coup, it was a coup against Yanukovych. Let's see what comes next. But that'll be a diplomatic card we could play. Go ahead and have the referendum. They will vote to join Russia, but that doesn't mean because they've requested to join Russia, we have to say okay. Just take that and say to the West, look, the Crimean people want to join Russia. We understand that that may be you know, difficult for you, can we find a way to solve this problem, short of annexation? In other words, can we get guarantees for Crimea? So Putin was told that was an option, and he didn't choose it. And I try to put myself in his shoes and say, what would I have done? And the problem is, is I don't know the intelligence. For example, there is a report, I don't believe or disbelieve it, that NATO commandos were found on Crimea on the peninsula. I don't know if that's true. Maybe it was scuttlebutt. Did Putin know it to be true? I don't know. But we have yet to be told the whole story of what happened between the coup in Kiev, because it was a coup, it overthrew the president, and the decision. Russians don't say annex, they say rejoin with, or welcome Crimea home, to make that decision. One day we'll know more, and then we'll be able to decide if Putin really had a choice. Do you, and I don't, one, have any, I don't have any detailed knowledge about the situation. I don't have enough. N never mind. You understand, there's a question mark by what I say. We don't know for sure. Yeah. But was, do you think there might have been an option to have a referendum that took a little, there was more time, maybe yeah, get the true. United Nations involved? A right, little, so something that, that gives that, a little more recognition okay. to it. Without naming names. And I'm not talking the morality here, no, I'm no, talking no, tactical. Practical yeah. politics. Yeah. The point is, is that Putin was told, now mind you, this is an, I mean, it's a good thing that he's a former KGB officer, by the way. Henry Kissinger, when he first met Putin, and he learned, this was when Putin was working as deputy mayor in, in, in St. Petersburg, and Kissinger met him. And Putin said to Kissinger, you know, I began in intelligence, and Kissinger said that's the best way to start a political career. Kissinger had started intelligence during the war, right? Because these guys think, and maybe they're right, that if you're trained in intelligence, you're able to evaluate intelligence. That is, you aren't going to be fooled by your own intelligence people. That you can sort out false intelligence from legitimate intelligence. Putin was in a position, I think, to evaluate the intelligence. So the question that you raise is true. Why didn't they wait? And he was told, we can't wait. 
Do you think it's part Events of, are moving too fast. In the earlier, last segment, you talked about the pressure on him, that he's not proactive enough. Yes. Is and this that, partly responding to that kind of pressure? Yes, and, is, and, I, and that's why I want to return to this issue, that only once before had Crimea been an issue in Russian politics, when a political party ran against Putin on a platform that we should somehow get Crimea back. They got, I think, 2% of the vote. There was no, no, no popular support for this. Putin was disdainful of the idea. In other words, this was something. This was not aggression. This is ridiculous. This was a decision imposed upon him by circumstances that he did not create, but to which he now had to react. And I don't know whether he knew it or not, but that was probably his most historic decision. And, I mean... It's not his most historic, but it is part of what will forever define his role for Russians in Russian history. Forever. So let's get to the big underlying you question. You can go to here. Moscow and buy a poster in a shop. And at the top is a map of Crimea, a very distinctive peninsula, right? On one side is Khrushchev, who signed... Crimea over to Ukraine, right, when, in 1954-55 when the Soviet Union existed. On the other side is a picture of Putin, and it simply says, he gave away, he took back. That, I mean, you could see these in the shops, these were Khrushchev frivolously on some anniversary said, okay, you, uh, Crimea is part of Ukraine. In your book, uh, and, 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 and Kissinger saying he might have been drunk that night when he did it. Uh, Who? I think in your book you say that, don't you? No, that's not me. I don't well, somebody said that Khrushchev might have been drunk the night that he gave Crimea. No, I, I didn't say that. I, I, I don't know. But, but Somebody but, quotes Kissinger. Possibly. But, you know, these are, if you're a student of history, and particularly of political leadership, as I like to think I am, this is a, Graham Allison practically made a career of writing about the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and how the Kennedy team, right? He's famous for studying that as a case study in crisis leadership. And Kennedy comes out looking pretty good. But by the way, I would say Khrushchev comes out looking pretty good too because the Russian reaction could have been different. But now we have Putin in Crimea. He had to make a decision that was imposed upon him. Now we don't have all the information, but we should be fascinated to study and understand this rather than demonize Putin for doing Okay, let me, the sort of big underlying question, because, I mean, Kissinger said that what Putin did in Crimea was an anomaly, that you can't extend anything from that, that does not prove that Russia's on the march and they're going to start threatening other Baltic states and all this. The Crimea is a very particular situation. Clearly, that was not the predominant attitude of the West towards Crimea. So why, when uh, you know, it began under Yeltsin, but with Putin, uh, and Putin seemed ready for it, why didn't the West assimilate Russia into Western capitalism? So we're turning the clock back yeah, we're now going back. to the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah, we're going back into the, the early years of Putin. <clears throat> and then why not let Russia join the EU? Why not encourage this uh, a kind no, of wait, we a gotta get, mixing? We've we got to get the history straight, or at least the history you're talking about. If you're talking about the decade, the 1990s, following the end of the Soviet I'm talking about Union, when Putin comes to power. Well, he comes to power in 2000. Yeah. But I thought you, but why didn't the West assimilate Russia after the end of the Soviet Union? Well, well when Putin it, came to power. Well, you got the free-for-all of the 90s. 
But as that free-for-all had an American hand supporting Nelson through much yeah, through so that whole that, period. I mean, Clinton, unwisely, not only Clinton, Bill Clinton, not Hillary, and Bill Clinton, who was president then in the 90s, believed that he was assimilating Russia with his policy toward Yeltsin. That's what he thought. And he was so advised by people such as Strobe Talbot, all of whom should have known better. Uh, in fact, uh, Russia descended in the 1990s into the worst and most corrosive economic depression ever in peacetime. Uh, men were dying at 57. Uh, I think the collapse of industrial production was greater than it was during our own Great Depression. Uh, people were not receiving their wages or their social benefits. Uh, the middle class was being vaporized. Uh, gangs were controlling large parts of the economy. Some people even think it was what co we people call state capture, that private oligarchs had captured the state. Russia was on the verge, if not of actually breaking up, of collapsing. Now, flashback to that moment, 1999. Russia, the largest territorial country in the world, even after the end of the Soviet Union, laden, laden, stockpiled with every conceivable weapon of mass destruction, from germ, bacterial, uh, chemical, nuclear. What if Russia had broken up? What if? We're talking apocalypse now. I would think that people would give Putin a little credit for holding Russia together, reestablishing control over the, the regions that had these weapons. But he's never given any, any, any credit. Russians themselves do, but in the West. Imagine what it would have happened. Now, it wasn't just Putin alone. He put together a team, a commanda, as it's called in Russia. No one man can do this. But he chose advisors who understood the situation. At the time, at the time, this was semi-welcomed in Washington. You remember that Putin came to see the second President Bush, and they went to the ranch. And Bush said, I looked into his eyes and I saw a good soul. Mm -hmm. And other things like that. And I think you, Paul, are right when you say that they, meaning the people who control our foreign policy, thought that this would be the continuation of the 1990s, <clears throat> except that Putin would be a healthy and sober Yeltsin that Yeltsin had become dysfunctional, unable to govern the country that the West wanted to assimilate. And when it turned out that Putin wasn't Yeltsin, even though Yeltsin put him in power, indeed, historically speaking, Putin could not have been Yeltsin, though he's never given his anti-Yeltsin speech the way Khrushchev gave his anti-Stalin speech. This is interesting. He's been urged to give this speech, by the way, the de-Yeltsinization speech analogous to Khrushchev's de-Stalinization speech. He's never done that. People say he's too loyal to a fault. Too loyal. Putin. Some trade he's got. And they criticize him for it. But nonetheless, very soon American disillusion in Putin set in. And we can date it. 
there is, there was then and remains today a New York Times columnist, Nicholas Kristof, who wrote, I think it was 2003, maybe I'm off a year, a year and a half, a half a year, that he was greatly disillusioned, he Kristof, that Putin had not turned out to be a sober Yeltsin. Imagine this. In other words, they, to the extent that columnists speak for these great powers, wanted Yeltsin, a person who by then had positive ratings in Russia of about 3%, who was hated in Russia for what had happened to the country. But the only grievance in Washington was is he wasn't sober and healthy enough to continue the policy. And Putin, they thought at the beginning, was a sober, healthy Yeltsin. Look at him, and Yeltsin, on Yeltsin, as they say, he's from Yeltsin. He's got to be, but it was clear, if you've been paying attention, it would have been clear it was impossible. And when it dawned on them, they were bitter. And I'm not sure that they started hating on Putin because they personally had been so wrong, their analysis had been wrong, or because they couldn't stand the thought of an un-Yeltsin to this day. Because even today you can read in the New York Times and other analyses, so-called, that how great it was under Yeltsin. It wasn't great. It was a country in agony. And it was dangerous to us with all those weapons. So, you know, we've discarded history. We've discarded real historical and political analysis for a kind of Russophobia that I actually never experienced in my lifetime before. It's much worse now. And remember one thing as we all go forward and think about Russiagate, which I think is going to be with us in one way or another for decades. But the Putin, Putin phobia, the hating on Putin, began long before Trump was a presidential candidate, long before. The two got fused together in Russiagate. The loathing for Putin and the loathing for Trump was fused into this thing called Russiagate. Now, who did the initial fusing? In my book, I argued it was our intelligence services, and particularly the CIA. We will see. I think we're going to have some investigations now. I may be wrong. I don't think it was the FBI, as people think. I think it was Brennan and Obama's CIA that got all this started. But these, this didn't come out of nowhere. This had been developing. This demonizing of Putin had been going on for years before Trump appeared on the scene. And then, bingo, it came together. And we're stuck with it, and it ain't going to go away. And I think it's the worst threat to our national security. I've said Russiagate is the great, number one threat to our national security. In the book, I, I do the five greatest threats to our national security. The book is all short pieces. And Russia, Russia and China don't make the top five. Russiagate's number one. Unfortunately, you're younger than I am, so we can't share these moments together. But there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, correct? Well, I, you I, know was, I was live. I, I was very aware of it. All right. But it is said in the, in the history books and the textbooks that it's the closest we ever came to nuclear war with Russia, Soviet Russia, correct? Yeah, if you listen to Ellsberg, uh, we were seconds from it. Okay. And yet, because of the leadership of Kennedy, and I would add Khrushchev, because it takes two to tango, as Reagan said. These two guys averted uh, Armageddon, correct? And that's the lesson we've taught our kids, and we teach it in our textbooks. Okay, imagine today, and it doesn't take a lot of imagining, that we have a Cuban Missile Christ-like confrontation. 
Could be in Venezuela, could be in Syria, could be in former Soviet Georgia, could be in Ukraine, lots of places. It happened suddenly. The two nuclear superpowers are eyeball to eyeball, like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Everybody credits Kennedy and Khrushchev with averting the crisis. This happens tomorrow. Do you think the American political class and its media are going to invest Trump with the authority to negotiate a way out of nuclear war? The guy they've called the Kremlin puppet? And are they going to credit Putin, the guy they've so demonized, as a, bar, as, as a partner to avert nuclear war? They will not. And what happens then? And the answer is nuclear war. That's why I say we're walking on a razor's edge with this Russiagate demonizing of Putin nonsense. We need these two guys, whether we like them or not, to avoid nuclear war. And we are, we have too many situations fraught with war with Russia, which could become nuclear war more than we've ever had before. And the people who have contributed to this, these, situa these situations refuse to acknowledge what they've done. Above all, the mainstream media. What you and I are discussing today should be discussed in the major newspapers and television talk shows of this country nightly. And I guarantee you, uh, decades ago it would have been. We've lost our way. And the new way is exceedingly dangerous. I agree with all of that, but I got a but. It's not just the MSNBCs and the Democratic Party that are making this so fraught with danger, but it's also the agenda of the Trump administration and the people around it. For example, in Venezuela, where Pompeo is a Koch brothers guy, um, the uh, Koch brothers have a deep interest in Venezuelan heavy crude. Uh, Canadian mining companies have a big, deep interest in Venezuelan gold. Um, Pence is a Koch brothers guy. The agenda is a very aggressive agenda. So it's, it's, it's complicated by the fact that it's not like Trump. I, I, have, I have zero faith in Trump as someone who might play such a constructive role. You don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. You don't, no, you do not have a choice. Uh, because if, he's the president. No, if, if such a situation, a Cuban Missile Crisis-like situation, would occur, you will either trust and empower Trump to avert it or prepare yourself for nuclear war. And there, for me, there is no choice. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And and about the, and Venezuela and the rest, you have to talk to somebody else. I don't know that story. But, but the, the, the pushback, like, I think we need to do both. We need to, you know, what you're doing, which is attack and denounce this demonization of Putin and tying the hands of Trump to have some kind of normalization with Russia, yeah. for whatever reasons, needs to be denounced. And I really value what you're doing on this. I just... As I said in the earlier so we're segment, a, we're, we need to talk about the, the aggressive militarist agenda of Trump as well. But that happens every day. I mean, my truth uh, is maybe there are not pe many people that speak what I think is this truth that I've spoken to you. And the bashing of Trump is ample and maybe not sufficient. Maybe there needs to be more. But we're at an interesting moment now.
We are now approaching uh, a new presidential season in this country. Can I, can I just intervene for just a sec? The, 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 the problem here is both on Venezuela and Iran, the Democratic Party foreign policy establishment is on the same page as Trump. Netanyahu's on the same page as Trump. The Saudis are on the same page as Trump. Like when, when, when Trump throws this missile in, missiles into Syria after the supposed gas attack, uh, Chuck Schumer says, finally, Trump's acting as a president. Like the, the problem is, is that the, as much as these guys vilify and are dangerous, these guys mean the Democrats and that whole establishment are dangerous on Russia. I don't disagree. They'll converge with Trump on some very dangerous stuff in Iran. I don't disagree. So, but that brings me to my final point, I guess. Because uh, we are at the time we are in, we now have, I think at last count, 19 or 20 Democratic would-be uh, contenders for the presidential nomination, 19 or 20. Uh, we need to ask ourselves which of any of these people see these dangers clearly and ask them. But I have a feeling that the mainstream media will not ask them because these are uncomfortable issues for them. I also think that the one candidate who has embraced a position similar to my own, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, was immediately attacked by NBC, as you know, scurrilously. Uh, that it's a question of what kind of discussion, because according to our democracy, these existential issues that you and I have discussed are discussed during presidential campaigns. This is when we clarify and make our choices. Uh, it seems to me this is unlikely to happen, partly because the mainstream media doesn't permit voices like mine any longer, though they used to welcome me. I used to work for them. It'll be interesting to see how they treat Tulsi Gabbard who's the closest to this kind of anxiety about the new Cold War with Russia, has taken positions on this. There may be others, but I haven't, I haven't noted them yet. We'll see how, how there, if there's an attempt to suppress her view or to give her fair time. Now, she'll have to do well in a primary somewhere to get that. But it's a little discouraging that of 19 or 20 Democrats, only one thus far has spoken with some clarity about this, what I consider to be, the number one existential issue, the danger of war with Russia. Well, you're certainly welcome on the Real News Network. Well, maybe you should have Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, we too. have and we will again. Oh, you have, good. Oh, yeah. We've interviewed a couple of times and we're actually just arranging another one now. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. All right, well, thank you so much. Well, I hope this is just the beginning of a conversation. Today or tomorrow? <laughs> another day, no, but I'll begin. Appreciate it. Thanks very, Thanks much. very much. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the Real News Network.